This gives us the departure into Galilee and the healing of the nobleman's son. Now in John chapter 4, verse 54, we read this is the again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Here is the second miracle of Jesus in Galilee. Now this obviously is not the second miracle because you remember when we studied John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, that while he was at Jerusalem, Jesus twice performed many miracles. So this is not the second miracle. What is the second miracle that he performed in Galilee? The first miracle was the turning of water into wine. That was performed at Cana of Galilee. The second miracle in Galilee was also performed at Cana of Galilee. Now let's take a minute and look at what a miracle is. A miracle is an event in the physical world effected by the direct and immediate power of God and intended to authenticate a message or a messenger. Let me say that once again. A miracle is an event in the physical world effected by the direct and immediate power of God and intended to authenticate a message or a messenger. Now that definition has within it three ideas. Number one, it's an event in the physical world. Technically, technically, the word miracle is not applied to regeneration and sanctification and those things that take place in the soul. Now, those are supernatural, and that's miraculous. But technically, a, the term miracle is we reserve for something that's done in the physical realm. And the reason it is, is so that it can appeal to the physical eye. You can see it. Secondly, it's an event in the physical world that's effected by the direct and immediate power of God. That means that God bypasses secondary causes. <clears throat> now, normally God rules and governs this universe by secondary causes. That's called the doctrine of providence. Once in a while, he interferes and works directly instead of indirectly. Normally, children are brought into life by the secondary cause of conception. But once at the beginning of this world, God brought two people in by a miracle, Adam and Eve, and the third time with Jesus, by direct intervention. That's a miracle, a supernatural event. Normally, God uses secondary causes, gravity and so on. Normally, axe heads sink in water. But one of them didn't. God interfered and worked directly. Third, a miracle is intended to authenticate a messenger of mentioned they are his credentials. When our ambassador goes to the court of St. James, he shows his credentials. The miracles were the credentials of Moses and the credentials of Jesus and the credentials of Elijah and the credentials of the apostles. They're the credentials of prophets. Since there are no prophets in the biblical sense of the term, 
through God, through God is speaking directly and infallibly, then there are no miracles today in the New Testament sense of the term. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't work and heal a person if he so pleases. That doesn't mean that if all the doctors give up on the man, that God cannot intervene and heal a man if he pleases. You believe that God can perform a miracle, heal me, and heal a person? Absolutely, if he wants to. If it's his will, certainly he can. Normally, his plan is not to. And if he doesn't, it's no reflection on the person's spiritual state. But if God wants to, he can. He can do what he wants to. Who could limit God and the omnipotence of God? And if God is pleased to, normally he's God. But if he's pleased to, he does. But if he does, listening, that does not authenticate anybody as a prophet. And a miracle in the Bible was intended to authenticate a prophet. Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Jesus, the apostles. Five great periods of miracles in the Bible. The days of Moses, the plagues, the days of Elijah and Elisha, the days of Daniel, the days of Christ, and the days of the apostles. They authenticated a prophet, and that was their intention. A miracle, therefore, is an event in the physical world affected by the direct, immediate power of God and to intended to authenticate a message or a messenger. Now, there are eight miracles in John's gospel if we include the... Uh, Miracle of the resurrection, if we include that. Great miracles, seven otherwise. And uh, John speaks of miracles and the testimonies of miracles when he comes to John chapter 5. And I was going to talk upon that a few minutes, but I'm not. I'm going to wait till we come to John chapter 5. There are also seven witnesses in the Gospel of John. We went over this one time. Now, the Father uses three of them. The Father witnesses through three of them. John chapter 5. Uh, first of all, uh, the Father witnesses through uh, miracles, signs. That's, uh, first of all, through John the Baptist. That's the first testimony that the Father gives to Jesus through John the Baptist. Secondly, through miracles. The miracles that Jesus performed were done by the Holy Spirit to authenticate Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said about those people that anything said against me will be forgiven, but he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. How did he blaspheme the Holy Spirit? By attributing the miracles done by Jesus, but effected by the Holy Spirit, to Beelzebub, to Satan, to the devil. They said that Jesus worked those miracles, yes, but he did it by the power of the devil. That's why I don't believe the unpardonable sin can be committed by anybody today. Jesus Christ isn't present on earth. And the unpardonable sin was attributing to the, Holy, to the devil the work of the Holy Spirit in effecting miracles, those credentials, those authenticating means to um, 
that belong to the Holy Spirit. Now, because of this work of Christ in Galilee and the miracles, and there are two things that we're going to come to. Remember, Jesus Christ has been down about seven months in, in, in Judea and about uh, two or three days in Samaria, and now he comes to Galilee. We're going to have two things here, just as you have on that outline. Our mimeograph machine broke down today, so we had to use the ditto. But I think you can see it. If you can't see it, you better go to the optometrist or the, uh, I, can't, I can't remember the longer word, the ophthalmologist, and see him, you see. All right, we've got two things here. First, the arrival of Christ in Galilee and his reception by the Galileans. And second, the healing of the uh, nobleman's son. First, the arrival of Jesus Christ in Galilee, reception by the Galileans. Now, we read that already. That's found in verses 43 to 45. After two days, he departed from Samaria, went into Galilee. Galilee's located north of Samaria. Jesus leaves, uh, after two days, Jesus leaves Samaria and uh, ventures into Galilee and eventually comes to a place called Cana. Now, there's something that uh, I need to say here, but I don't want to take the time to look at it. This is the point at which the synoptic Gospels and John come back together again. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find out that Jesus Christ, after John was in prison, went into Galilee and went to Nazareth, and they tried to throw him off the cliff. Then he went down to Capernaum. You read that in Luke, because Matthew and Mark omit that. Then he went down to Capernaum and called Peter and Andrew, James, and John. <coughs> but before he went to Nazareth, <coughs> before he went down to Capernaum, he went back to Cana and healed the nobleman's son, then to Nazareth, then down to Capernaum. And here's where they dovetail together again. But just the one incident. Next, next incident in John chapter 5, Jesus is back in Judea once again. Now, there's no contradiction. But the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, focus on the Galilean ministry, whereas John focuses on his ministry primarily in Judea. So he goes up to Galilee for this, uh, really, really now, for the greater Galilean, what is called the greater Galilean ministry. Now, you listening? It covers about uh, 16 months. Sometimes 16, 18 months is called. The law. John only gives us two incidents. One of them. One of them is um, this one right here, and the second one is the feeding of the five thousand in John chapter six. That's all he gives us of of that greater Galilean ministry of Christ, which is covered in Matthew and Luke by about twelve to fourteen chapters. John only gives us two instances. He focuses on the ministry in Judea. Now he says, verse 44, this is the reason that John went up to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now that's always been a problem to the commentators, and I don't have any final solution to it. His own country refers to Galilee. If it referred to Judea, we'd understand it. But it refers to Galilee. So it says in verse 43 that Jesus, Christ, departed from, from Samaria, went into Galilee. And then the reason he went into Galilee 
And Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in Galilee, in his own country. Now, that's strange, isn't it? The reason he went there to Galilee is because the prophet doesn't have any honor there. You would think it would be because he had an audience there. No, no, because he has no honor there. Well, what's the answer? Well, the commentaries wrestle with that. I think the best solution is this. Do you remember why Jesus Christ left Judea? Do you remember that he discovered, he found out, that there was a rising conflict between his disciples and John's disciples? And the Pharisees were beginning to zero in on his disciples. And he left so that he would not precipitate a conflict between him and the Pharisees before the time of his crucifixion. It would have if he stayed. So he went to a place where he would receive no honor. And if he received no honor there, then a conflict would not arise between him and his opponents. And he could carry on his work. See? And that went along for about a year and a half. And then conflict did begin to arise. And I think that's the best solution to that, uh, to that problem created by that statement. Now, the average person reads over that and doesn't find any problem, and perhaps I shouldn't have, because they don't even know what his own country means. They, well, that maybe means Memphis, Tennessee. No, it means Galilee. Verse 45, then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. That is those many miracles that he performed. The Galileans had gone down there for the Passover feast. While they're down there for the Passover feast, they saw Jesus Christ perform those miracles. How do you remember that? You don't. Well, let's go back over to John 2 and look at it. John chapter 2, verse 23. John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast, uh, uh, in the feast day, the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not trust himself unto them because he knew all this. He knew their faith was a shallow, superficial sign of faith. So he didn't commit himself. Now look back at John chapter 4, verse 45. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. But well, they also went to feast. They were there at that Passover feast eight months ago. They saw those miracles. They remembered it. And so they wanted to see him. But the thing that prompted them to see him was not what he said, nor what he was, but the miracles that he did. See, all through the Gospel of John, we find people who come to Jesus, but they're attracted by the miracles which they did. Send him your handkerchief, and we'll heal you, see. I was in Hickson, Tennessee. Saturday night, a preacher came on. Put your hand on that television set, and you'll get healed, see. Well, I didn't put it on. I was feeling pretty good and didn't want to get sick. I figured the office would hire me, so I didn't put it on. The same kind of thing we got today in the 20th century. They were going after him because they all they wanted, as Jesus said, because I gave you some bread, material interest. And Jesus rebuked that kind of faith. He 
it used to see earthly. And he said in John chapter 2, he wouldn't entrust himself to those. See, it's not faith in signs. It's not simply faith in the word. It's faith in a person that's saved. Now we come to the second event, and that's the healing of the nobleman's son. Let's read the first part of the story. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman there. There was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, Cana and Capernaum about 25, 30 miles apart. Here's Cana, and Capernaum is down there, and Nazareth is here. So apparently when he came up to Galilee, he bypassed Nazareth for some reason, went to Cana. And then after this incident at Cana, he goes to Nazareth, and after going to Nazareth, he went down to Capernaum. Well, here was a um, here was a, a nobleman down at Capernaum whose little child was sick. He's called the nobleman. The word is uh, basilikos, the Greek word, which means that he was an officer in the king's um, retinue. He was an officer under the king. The king was Herod Antipas. You remember Jesus said one time to his disciples. Herod wants to see you. So Herod there, there are, uh, you know, half a dozen Herods, and you really have to thread your way through the New Testament to find out which Herod uh, the Bible is referring to. This is Herod Antipas. Jesus called him that old fox. Really, it was a female. Jesus called him that old vixen. He was probably a feminine. That's the same Herod that was down at the trial of Jesus, to whom Pilate sent the Lord Jesus. Now, this man was an officer under Herod. Not nobleman, but an officer under Herod. And he had a son who was sick at Capernaum. Verse 52 tells us that the boy suffered from a very high fever. And they said unto him, verse 52, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the boy was apparently suffering from a very high fever, 104, 105, and at the point of death. The daddy was at wit's end corner, didn't know what to do. He had heard about this miracle worker, heard about what he did at Cana, turning water into wine. Boy, that circulated, turning water into wine. That circulated, see? And uh, also, no doubt, there were several hundred people that had gone down to Capernaum at the Passover. And they came back to Capernaum and told this man, all that this man Jesus did, by way of miracles at Jerusalem. So when this officer found that Jesus was at Cana, he headed right up from Capernaum to Cana to see Jesus and uh, wanted him to do something about his, his son. So he brings the story, and he makes his request in verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto the Lord, went unto him, and besought him, and that's the imperfect tense. He kept on, kept on asking him that he would, Eris tense, immediately come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Come down. This is the request of the nobleman. Come on down right away and heal my son. Now the nobleman makes two mistakes. I've indicated them there. He made two mistakes. He made three of them. The third one is the worst one. 
the first two are to be expected. The first mistake he made was that he thought that Jesus had to come down to Capernaum to heal his son. If Jesus Christ is God, then he could heal a man on the other side of the globe, couldn't he? Faces it. This is the God of space. This is the God who's omnipresent. If he's present everywhere, then he could heal as easily as Capernaum as he could uh, at Cana. You know, it's kind of like people who say, my, I'd love to go to that retreat held up high in the mountains. I just feel so much closer to God when I'm up high on the mountain. See, you ever hear anybody talk like that? Well, you know, closer to God. See, you're just higher up in the mountains and down at, uh, down at uh, Death Valley. It'll be a little cooler up there, but no closer. See, <laughs> cooler, but no closer. And um, so he thought that Jesus had to come down there, not recognizing that Jesus, not knowing that Jesus is God, the anonymous doesn't even have to. The second mistake he made was that uh, he felt that Christ's power didn't extend beyond death, and he better come now before he dies. Well, if Jesus Christ gave men life the first time, one have difficulty giving men life the second time. Now notice the swift rebuke of Jesus. You know, I'm always surprised, not always, but I'm surprised when I read it. It always impresses me. Let me put it that way. How swiftly and bluntly Jesus Christ answers these things. He answered Nicodemus that way, didn't he? Nicodemus gave him a nice compliment. You're a teacher. Come from God. No man can do all these things that you do. Paid him a beautiful compliment. Now, if we'd been there, we're tactful, he would have said, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but he didn't. He just bluntly said, Nicodemus, You've got to be born again. He was the shock creature. This man came and begged him to come down, and Jesus came back swiftly, swiftly, abruptly, and bluntly. And he said to him in verse 48, Then said Jesus unto him, singular, unto him, singular, except you, plural, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, Jesus is talking both to the nobleman and probably to all those that are around in general when he says you. Now, why did he come back? And I hope you're listening to this very carefully because we're getting to the heart of this thing. Why did the Lord Jesus come back with this swift and blunt and abrupt answer? Come down. My son is at point of death. Come down and help. We would say, if nothing else, we would say, well, let's pray for your son. I'll come as soon as I can. But Jesus didn't. He came with this swift, abrupt, blunt statement. You won't believe unless you see miracles. Why? Well, because his and their coming to Jesus reflected no deep spiritual need. He was only interested in the spectacular in the sensational, in the meeting of the physical need. And the reason I'm saying this and reading it carefully from what I've written is because we have a whole lot of this in America today. This man and these others came to Jesus. 
down at John chapter 2 at the feast. John chapter 6. You come to me not because you sense your spiritual needs, but only because you're interested in the bread that I distribute. And this, this man and others were coming to Jesus Christ, but they reflected no deep sense of spiritual need. Only interested in the spectacular, the sensational, the meeting of physical needs, but no deep sense of spiritual need and no deep attachment to the person of Christ. And saving faith is not interest in what miracles he can perform. Saving faith isn't simply attachment to the word of God and affirming a creed. Saving faith is attachment to a person. Jesus Christ addressed these men abruptly and strongly when they came to him because they're only interested in the material, not in the spiritual. Therefore, he rebuked him severely. Jesus Christ severely condemned sign faith. Faith is only attached to the material and the physical, the healing of the body, and nothing more. He did it in John chapter 2. Does it here? Does it in John chapter 6, verse 26? Look at that. It's only a couple of... We read John chapter 2. John chapter 6, verse 26. Verse 25, but when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them. Answered them. What did he answer? This is no answer. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracle and what they're intended to point out, but because you but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. How was that an answer? That's an answer to what was inside their heart and mind. What they said with their lips was superficial. They wanted to get him, probably make him king in a nationalistic sense, take off the yoke of Rome, interested in giving him a permanent source of food without any work. Jesus said, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in bringing my men to myself. And you know what he did? John chapter 6. Look at John chapter 6, verse 66. What happened to those men? When he talked about himself, when he talked about his death, when he said to them, you've got to eat the body and drink the blood of the Son of Man. You've got to personally appropriate me. Verse 66, what happened? From that time, many disciples, what happened? Yeah, they weren't interested in that, were they? They weren't concerned about meeting their spiritual needs. They wanted that material, and that's all. And Jesus severely condemned that sort of faith because it's mere sign faith. Jesus condemned it. We've got a lot of that today over the radio and on TV and holding campaigns in Memphis and other cities. An appeal simply to the superficial, sign faith, sign faith. And Jesus wasn't interested. But Jesus Christ didn't simply, you know, uh, dismiss him with a, uh, a nice goodbye. The reason the Lord dealt with him so severely and abruptly is because Jesus wanted to shake him out of his complacency and develop his faith. 
He saw this, he saw in this man something genuine, something real. He wanted to develop his faith. So the Lord did not refuse the father's request. He only wanted to advance that man's faith. So the request is repeated by the nobleman in John chapter 4. He says once again, the nobleman saith unto him, Sir, verse 49, come down before my child die. Come down before my child die. Jesus saith unto him, verse 50, all right, let's go. Is that what he says? What he says? Go thy way, thy son lives. You know, I'm confident that startled that man. Go thy way, thy son lives. That was a totally unexpected reply. He thought at best Jesus would say, well, all right, let me finish up my business here, and I'll go down with you. Uh, you know, I can't work miracles only within an auditorium set where we can take up collections. If I do it down here, you know, down in Cana, I can't take up any collections. So, uh, uh, no, no, no. He said, go, your son lives. And so the man, assuming that Jesus had come to heal and assuming he healed him, the nobleman responded to that in verse 50. The man believed. What did he believe now? He believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him, and he went his way. Now we look here. Here's a second. Here's an advance. First of all, he believed the sign. He was interested in the sign. Sign faith. Now he stepped up a little. Now he's reciting the Apostles' Creed. Now he's affirming his faith in a doctrine, in a word. He believes the word that Jesus has spoken. But that's not enough. That won't save a man. What is higher? And that's why Jesus deals with him. Deals with him in such a severe way. Not to turn him away, but to advance him and to develop his faith. And so he's moving up now. He believes the word that Jesus has spoken, and he went away. So verse 51 and 52, first part of 53, as he was now going down, and that's correct, because Cana is high, and Capernaum is right at the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is over 600 feet below sea level. So as he was going down to Capernaum, the servants who had left Capernaum to come up and tell him the good news, the servants met him and told him, saying, Your son is living. He's amending. He's getting well. Well, the father asked a natural question. We'd all ask him. So the nobleman said to his servant, uh, what hour did my son begin to improve? When did he take a dramatic turn for the good? And they said unto him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the high fever left him, Eris 10, left him immediately, dramatically and immediately. Now, what is the seventh hour? Well, if we figure from the Roman way of computation, it'll be 7 o'clock at night. If we figure it from the Jewish method of computation, it'll be 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And the commentators labor over this. I'm not going to get into it. I shouldn't have gotten into that other little problem. To heal his son. Verse 48, Then said Jesus unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What kind of faith was it? Sign faith. 
sign faith, not personal faith, sign faith. Then you come to chapter 50, uh, to verse 50, and it says the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken in him, and he went his way. That's much better, but that's still not faith in a person. That's what I call C-R-E-E-D, creed faith. The first was sign faith, faith in the material, material, what Jesus could do for him, sign faith. The second is creed faith. That's much better. But now, verse 53, he himself believes that's personal faith. That's faith in Jesus Christ himself. And that's the kind of faith that saves. See, this man was saved at this point. This man became a believer in the New Testament sense at this point. I wonder if you're all following me at, at this point. Huh? See, we've got a lot of people in all three states. The average, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the man, the normal evangelist in our country will tell you that 50% of the converts in his evangelistic meetings are church members. And when a man comes down, and that's true down in the Bible Belt in the South, why is that? Well, the reason is because a lot of people in churches, outside of churches, have faith. But some of it is only sign faith. The Lord takes care of them. They've been attracted by the sensational and the spectacular. And they're always seeing things. And the preacher's got to keep them at a high emotional lift or else they're going to drift away. Sign faith, that doesn't say. Then we have people, good people, but lost. And their faith is creed faith. Creed faith. You ask them, do you believe the Bible? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for sinners? Yes. Do you believe the Bible is the word of God without any mistakes? Yes. Do you believe what the Bible claims for Christ? Absolutely. Have you really trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? It's silent. Just like John Wesley, whose story I've told you. Coming back from Georgia with his brother, having spent two years as a missionary in Georgia, the ship on which they were traveling was overtaken by a strong storm. Everybody was scared stiff except two Moravian brethren missionaries the husband and his wife. They had a calmness and a quietness, and John Wesley was impressed by that. So when the storm was over, John Wesley fell into conversation with Mr. Moeller, I believe his name was. And during that conversation, Mr. Moeller asked him, during the course of the conversation, uh, which John Wesley had taken about 95% of it, I gather, Mr. Moeller spoke up, rather abruptly, said, Mr. Wesley, may I ask you a very personal question? John Wesley said, why, yes. And Mr. Moeller said, uh, Mr. Wesley, do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you? Moeller had that spiritual sensitivity that he could deserve the state of a man's soul before God. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you? Wesley was indignant, reared in a Christian home, 
You know, I found this also. You know, a fellow that's gone through seminary, college and seminary, maybe been out preaching, you ask him that question, and he gets a little jumpy and he's irritated, then there's something wrong. I don't mind when a fellow comes up, stranger. I don't like it when a guy that's known me for 20 years comes up and asks if I'm saved. See, that's another story. But a fellow catches me on the airplane and asks me, am I a Christian, am I a slave? I like that. I like to see a fellow doing personal work like that. That doesn't bother me. John Wesley, was, he was angered by it. Certainly, certainly, certainly. Oxford, reared. My mother taught me the Bible, went to Oxford, studied for the ministry, ordained to the ministry, served as a missionary, and you have the gall to ask me, thought Mr. Wesley, do I believe that Jesus Christ died for all the world? Certainly, I believe that Jesus died for all the world. Mr. Muller replied, Muller replied very quietly, Mr. Wesley, that wasn't the question I asked you. The question I asked you was this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you? And Wesley was silent. And the arrow went home. Got back to London, found the meeting of the Moravian Brethren. It wasn't but a few weeks before John Wesley was truly converted to Christ and regenerated. Do you know what the Methodist Church gave to England? Wesley, the Wesleyan revival, the impact of Wesley, historians will tell you, saved England from dropping into chaos, economic, social, and political. It was the Wesleyan revival that turned it around. And you know what Wesley gave to the world? He gave to the world the doctrine of personal regeneration in the days of a high biblical orthodox culture. And we have some of the same in the South. High orthodox biblical culture. Here on the West Coast, in the Chicago area, Pennsylvania area, high orthodox culture. Wesley faced the same thing and gave to England and to the world the doctrine of personal regeneration. Not enough to go to Oxford. Not enough to be reared in a Christian home. Not enough to be ordained to the ministry. Not enough to serve as a missionary. You must be born again. That saved him. And the major thrust of this whole incident, my friend, are you listening? The major thrust of this whole incident is to show how Jesus brought this man from a superficial sign faith up to a creed faith, a belief in his word, and finally up to a personal faith, a saving faith, a faith anchored not in miracles and signs which come and go, not simply in his word, but in the person of Jesus Christ. All right, verse 53. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said it, thy son lives, and he himself believed, and who else believed? This is probably the first incident of what we call household conversion. 
the whole house was saved. We have the same thing. Where else? Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and his whole house. And we have it in Acts chapter 16. 16, the Philippian jailer and his whole house. And that whole house, by the way, was baptized. Acts 16, and they were all baptized because it says the jailer believed and all his house. Which means that there weren't any infants there that got baptized. All his house believed along with the Philippian jailer. The whole house was converted. God is interested in households. Households. And the whole house here, he was interested in the whole house, and the whole house here believed, as did Cornelius' house, and uh, as did the house of the Philippian jailer. Now, verse 54. This is, again, the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, let's wrap, wrap up this miracle second miracle. Here's the second miracle. He showed Jesus Christ's authority over space. He was the God of space. He was sovereign. He didn't need to go, didn't need to go down to Canaan. He didn't need to have anybody send him any handkerchiefs or put their hand on the television. He just said the word. That's all. And the boy was healed. And healed perfectly. Showed Jesus' authority over sickness, and over space. Now, the miracles of Jesus are called signs. You remember our study, we said that there are four words for miracles. One of them is the word that John uses, and it's the only word John uses. It's thameon, which is a sign. Now, that means two things. A sign is, first of all, a pointer. It points to something. But also, the signs, the miracles of Jesus, were also revelational. They told something about him. I thought, how can I illustrate that? Well, let's suppose we went over the Arkansas Bridge, the new highway, and we got across there about five miles, and there's a sign. There's a sign. And it has an arrow. And that arrow points us, it says, Little Rock, 134 miles. There's one over there that says that. Little Rock, 134 miles, has an arrow with it. It points to something. So the miracles of Jesus pointed to the deity of Christ. They were pointers. But let us say also that right, we go another 10 miles. And uh, we see another sign that points to Little Rock, but this time it's on a big billboard. And on that great big billboard, they picture, they got a magnificent picture of downtown Little Rock with all the buildings. It's a beautiful picture. Little Rock, 124 miles. Now, that's not only a pointer. It tells us something about Little Rock. It's revelational. So when we come to the miracles of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus are both directional and revelational. They're directional. That is, they point to the deity of Christ. Those miracles say that this one is more than a man. This one is God. But they're also revelational. They reveal something of his character. 
So when Jesus opens blind eyes, John 9, that tells us when the Lord saves us, he opens our spiritual eyes. When Jesus raised Lazarus, what does that tell us? That he raises spiritually dead men, and someday he'll raise them physically. When the Lord Jesus Christ multiplies the loaves and gives them bread, that speaks to us of the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. And if we eat him, that is, if we appropriate him, he will save us and give us life eternal. And here, when Jesus heals this one, it tells us something, and that is, it tells us, number one, that he is omniscient. Are you listening? He's omniscient. He didn't have to send an intern down to Capernaum. He wasn't the chief doctor who said to an intern, run on down to Capernaum and put your stethoscope on him and find out what's really wrong. His father, this man made a, made a mistake here. No, he didn't. He was omniscient. He could see down there. He knew exactly what's wrong. Second, he was omnipresent. He didn't need to go down there. He was the God of space. As much present here in Cana and as much present there in Capernaum. Being God, he was omnipresent. It wasn't any more difficult, was it, to work in Capernaum? It was here. Let me ask you. Is it, is it very hard for you to be here and work in four cities? Is it? George would be hard, wouldn't it? I have a hard time working here, let alone on four cities. How would you like to work here and four cities at the same time? Problem for you, no problem for Christ. He is omnipresent. We learn that. But third, what's the other omni? Omnipotent. He's the God who can heal over long distances that heals somebody at the point of death. If the boy had died, it wouldn't have taken any more power on Jesus' part to raise him from the dead. We learn that. It's a pointer and revelational. Now, I want to close by one other thing. The thrust on this is to show the, uh, that this miracle effected the response that Jesus desired. See, every one of these miracles has three things in it. It has the miracle itself, turning water into wine, the healing of this nobleman's son, the miracle itself. Number two, it has the significance of the miracle, both a pointer and revelational. Number three, it tells us something about the effect of the miracle, the result, and the effect that Jesus desired in his miracles was to bring man to himself. And it says in John chapter 2, verse 11, when he turned water into wine, it says, now listen, that, that through this miracle, through this sign, he manifested his glory. Does anybody know the rest of that verse? And his disciples believed on him. That means they believed more surely on him. That's the purpose of these, to develop faith. So he comes to the second miracle. Here's the centurion. First, superficial faith, sign faith, interested only in the spectacular, only the miracle worker. 
no saving faith. But Jesus didn't turn him away. He led him up, secondly, to creed faith. Faith in his word. But that's not saving faith. Finally, he left staying with him. He led him up to the highest level where the man believed, period. That is, he believed in Jesus Christ personally. And that's saving faith. I have a sermon. I preached only twice. I, matter of fact, I've only preached it once. Four kinds of faith in the New Testament. Four kinds of faith in the New Testament. Now, I may preach in your church, so I don't think I'll give them. I'll give them. Four kinds of faith, New Testament. Four kinds. Number one, a false faith. And a false faith is faith that rests, on, that is anchored to something false. A false faith is trusting something false. That's illustrated in Philippians chapter 3. Paul had strong faith, but it was faith in the wrong thing. Paul said, I'm a Israelite, I'm the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a student, orthodox, a leader, and that's what Paul was trusting in to save him. That's a false faith. A false faith is a faith that's anchored to a false thing, a wrong thing. Secondly, second kind of faith is a superficial faith. And a superficial faith is that kind of faith the men had in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. A faith only in the sensational, in the spectacular, in the miracles of Jesus, and in nothing else. And when those miracles go, then the faith goes. And we got a lot of that today in America and in Memphis. The spectacular. And when you don't keep them on the high key, and when they get in the situation that God doesn't do the spectacular, Unless the mother dies, didn't heal them, unless them all sorts of troubles come in on top of them, not work with them, then the faith begins to dissipate. Superficial faith in the spectacular. Third kind of faith, third kind of faith is what I call an orthodox but dead faith. That's James chapter 2. Verse 19, 20, 21. Faith without works is what? Dead. Why? Faith without works is dead. Is that because you're saved by faith and works? I hear that illustration. You know, it's a, I, I read it about three or four months ago. A man illustrating the relationship between faith and works. Said it's like a man. I heard this. Remember, I read it heard it over the radio about three or four months ago and first read it about 30 years ago, that the relationship of faith and works is like this. A man gets in a boat, and he's on, he's going to heaven. Gets in a boat, crossing a river. The other side represents heaven. He's got two oars in his hand. One of those oars is called faith. The other one is called works. Well, the oar of faith and the oar of works, he's drawing to heaven. That's a terrible illustration. Matter of fact, you don't oar yourself to heaven with either one of those oars, see? God takes you there. We are not saved by faith plus works, but a 
through saving faith will prove its reality by good works. And James said, a faith that doesn't have any works, that doesn't change a man's vocabulary and his behavior and his conduct isn't a saving faith. See, that's a, I may be straight as a dollar. I may go to seminary, college, seminary, be straight as a dollar, recite the creed, believe in all the great doctrines. But if it's only up here, it's only intellectual, it's only in a sense, then it's not saving faith. And the fourth kind of faith is saving faith. Saving faith. Saving faith. And saving faith, my friend, involves two things. Conviction. Conviction and confidence. Now, by conviction, I don't mean conviction of sin. Conviction of the truth and confidence in a person. Conviction of the truth and confidence in a person. Now, what is the word that Billy Graham uses? Committal? He's been criticized for that. Committal. But as a matter of fact, that's a good word. The old medieval theologians said that faith embraced two th uh, three things. Notitia, ascensus, fiducia. Notitia, notitia, notion, ideas, facts. I can't believe in Jesus Christ unless I know something about him. Facts, notitia, ascensus. Now you know what that is. That's intellectual ascent. Intellectual ascent. That's John Wesley in Georgia, ordained to the ministry, ascent. And we have a lot of that. And I found, I discovered, we have a good deal of it in Memphis. And it's everywhere. I'm going to a camp this summer, latter, latter part of uh, July, early part of August. I went to the same camp about, oh, I've been there four or five times. They get hard up for speaking. So, uh, uh, no, I got an invitation about three years ago, years ago, and I go back about every three years. And I'm always, they have two-week camp there. One group is with all the independent and Baptist missions, missionaries. They have about 200, 300. The other is with a strong, strong Calvinistic group. And I'm always invited there. And I get along, they're normally very strong Calvinistic, and they're all, all, they're virtually all of them, all millennial. But I get along real well with them. I just, you know, there's a whole lot in the Bible that you can preach without falling out with the brethren. And these people are dear, devoted missionaries. I'll tell you, spent 25, 30 years out there, so I'll be the last one to judge them when they, when they uh, emulate the virtues of Christ and the desire to win souls to Christ. But they didn't believe in invitation. And um, so one night, speaking to them, night about 300, a lot of high school young people and junior high young people, that night I gave an invitation. And it was an invitation. I said, you're not sure that you're saved. You're not sure. You need to be sure. You need to nail it down. You need to nail it down. I said, I went through a period which I was somewhat unsure of my salvation. 
And I went through it for five, four or five years after preaching. And I had doubts. It was a terrible experience. I said, if you're not sure, God will give you the strength. If you don't really know for sure that you're saved, you haven't got the assurance of it, then I want to invite you to come up here and get up in the choir loft up there, just an old big tabernacle, and I want to talk to you. Thirteen high school kids responded. It wasn't a youth camp. They responded and went up there, and I dealt with them. Well, invitations were, you know, they were, that was not, very accepted, and there was a lot of rumbling in the bull brushes for the next couple of days. But here were kids that their parents, I know these people, they believe in the family altar. They believe in the family altar. They believe in, in a theocentric education. They believe that not only should the Bible be taught in the schools, but that every core science and history should be taught from a theistic viewpoint. They believe it's reflected in the kind of philosophy in some of our Christian schools. For example, the one where my kids go, to which my kids go. And they're committed to that. But the danger is that a young person could go through that, grow up the man, believe it all with his head, as senses, as senses, and not be saved. So the medieval theologians add another word. Fiducia, fiducia. We get fidelity from it. What is fiducia? Well, the best word to describe fiducia is committal, committal. You know what you do when you get off a boat into a lifeboat. That's committal, committal. I commit myself to Jesus Christ for time and eternity. And that's what saves me. No, Jesus saves me. But he saves me through committal. And I give myself to him. See, I don't so much ask him to come in here. I give myself to him. John chapter 2, Jesus wouldn't commit himself, trust himself to them. That's what saving faith is. Saving faith is the committal of the whole man for time and eternity to Jesus Christ in order to save you. And that's exactly the thrust of this miracle. See, here, look. I'm not trying to say, see John run, you know, but see here, look. <laughs> he started out here, superficial faith. Jesus brought him up here, creed faith. The Lord finally got up here, personal saving. May I ask you, where are you on this ladder tonight? See? Where is your I don't have, my faith is so weak. That's not what counts. It's not the strength and weakness of your faith. It's what your faith is in that counts. If it's in Christ, then you're safe.